Welcome, friends. I'm Sarah Ann Stewart, and this is the Awesome Inside Out Podcast. Now, I'm not sure how you ended up here today, but I want to welcome you with open arms. Because while our past may be different, I'm going to take a wild guess that we share one common desire to have a deeply fulfilling, extraordinary life in a body that we love. A life free of diets, free from guilt, and free from shame. In each episode, we're going to dive deep into mindset shifts that give you the power to decide how you feel, not the media, not your past, and not social conditioning. Then you'll discover how to use this inspiration and this new sense of confidence to be the best you, the you that you are meant to be. So get ready, my friend. It is time to get awesome inside out. Hey there, thanks for being here and joining me for another interview episode. It is always an honor to share this space and this time with you, and I trust that today's episode is going to inspire and uplift you and resonate on a deep level wherever you are in your life. Today, I have a really special guest for you, and so if you enjoyed the conversation, it would mean the world to me if you could share it with at least one person that you love and that could benefit from the wisdom that is shared. So today, we're diving into present moment living. Present moment living is trending. It's everywhere. Chances are you've seen ads like be here now, connect to the present moment, focus on your breath, letting go of the past and disconnecting from the future. And all of this is amazing until it's not. Because so often we interpret these present moment messages in a way that actually keeps us stuck. They keep us stuck in the belief that we don't have to heal the residue left over from our past. And while we're trying to progress and move forward, our subconscious mind and our imprints are actually pulling us back, which slows us down and often prevents us from moving at all. But I have really good news for you. This delay in moving forward is happening to you for a reason. It's because some part of you wants your attention. Some part of you is asking to be healed. And there is no better expert on this topic than one of my best friends, Megan Bernal. Megan is a mental health therapist, executive coach, writer, host of the Failure Factor podcast, and this week's guest. Megan specializes in perfectionism-related issues, such as depression, anxiety, and eating disorders. Drawing inspiration from her own life, she's contributed to The Huffington Post, Forbes, Thrillist, Gaia, Entrepreneur, and so many other platforms. From Megan's own experience, she understands deeply that we must take a sacred pause to resolve our past hurts. Otherwise, we're going to swim upstream without knowing that we're even in the river. The pain, the trauma, the heartbreak, the shame, the guilt, the perfectionism, it lives inside of all of us until we clear it. And Megan is one of the best in the world at helping individuals recognize and clear what is holding them back. Today, Megan is going to share powerful mindset shifts and applicable ways to start cultivating healing from within. Additionally, please note, Megan is going to share her story and specific details of her eating disorder, which may be triggering if you are currently struggling with food and your body. So it is always my job to help you make an informed decision before diving in. So please make note of this. If you're going to stick around, I recommend grabbing a piece of paper and a pencil to take some notes. And make sure to listen to the end as I'm going to share some applicable takeaways as well as a challenge for this week ahead so that you can not only gain this wisdom and knowledge, but you'll be able to start applying it directly to your life this week. 
Hey, Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. I am so excited to have this conversation. I love you so much. And I have been so excited about this for the last week because every time I talk to you, I am so elevated and inspired and transformed and all the things that you do so graciously and eloquently when we talk. So thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, Sarah, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And already I'm like feeling energized by your energy because like I definitely woke up kind of on the wrong side of the bed this morning and like was not feeling super energized. And already I feel like that's shifting just talking to you. So thank you. Yeah, I am of course always here for you. And I feel like this is one of those moments where I when I was thinking about our podcast, I was having flashbacks to all of the moments where I had breakdowns and like panic attacks. And I was calling you to kind of like pull me through and pull me out of it. And for those of you who don't know Megan, I would be surprised because we I've shared a lot about her, but she is one of those therapists that is very, very transparent and just shows up online as herself. And what I love so much about you is that I've always felt very comfortable coming to you with my panics, with my issues, with my stories, with my projections, with my illusions, everything that ever shows up for me because you have been so honest and transparent about your own life. And you're willing to say, yes, I'm a therapist. Yes, I have all of these studies under me. Yes, I continue to study and learn and grow, but here is where I fall short. And I don't think enough coaches do that. And so I just want to honor that moment and just say thank you for being that. And for all of the listeners, I just hope that after this conversation, you go and follow Megan because you will see so much of yourself in your stories. I wanted to just start with that. Like, What has brought you to that place where you've become so comfortable at sharing the parts of yourself that are dark and the shadows and the frustrations and the pain while saying, yes, I'm a therapist. And yes, I still have my shit that I have to deal with every single day as well. And so here's my truth. Oh, thank you, Sarah, for saying that. And it's always like validating. And I never get sick of hearing those sentiments because yeah, like I think we are in a world where, especially with Instagram and these sort of like curated expressions of ourselves or even like curated vulnerability, where it's like, oh, I'm like being really vulnerable about this thing, but it doesn't actually feel scary to share. Like it feels a bit contrived. I think we're just like in desperate need of seeing people's humanness. You know, we're just surrounded by images of quote unquote perfection and it makes us feel worse about ourselves. And I think that that's like, I mean, look, like my message that I'm trying to spread with the world is is not one that I came up with myself. I mean, it's very founded in, in spirituality and um, self-compassion. And the message is really like, it's not I'm perfect, it's I'm imperfect like the rest of the world or like all humans and and that's okay. And so I think, I mean, gosh, you know, I could say that I've been very strategic in sharing my imperfections, but the truth is like, for better or worse, I don't really know how to be any other way. Like it feels deeply inauthentic for me to pretend, you know, that I've got it all together and I'm not still working through things. And I mean, like many coaches and, and healers of all sorts, I came to this work because I wanted to figure myself out. I wanted to alleviate my own suffering. And I think I was really filled with compassion for others, at least at that time, not for myself, but for others, because I had experienced my own suffering and continued to, you know, so, you know, I, I don't want to invalidate those coaches who believe that they are like fully whole and whatnot, and that's their experience. So who am I to argue that? But I think 
based on the clients I work with, who many of which are, are coaches and, and therapists and stuff, it's a lifelong journey of, of self-awareness and continuing to work to accept our, our shadow sides and our imperfections, especially when we're living in a culture that as women in particular, we're told constantly that we're unlovable, we're unworthy, we're not enough, we're bad, we're broken because of our imperfections, either like physically or emotionally or relationally or intellectually or you know, entrepreneurially, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As you were saying, and you were saying, et cetera, et cetera, I was just thinking of all the other places in which we continue to hold stories around that we can't be more, have more, experience more, feel more, all of the projections that have been very much placed on us, which again, are these illusions that aren't true. And so it's about continuously coming forth and saying, this is who I am in this moment. And yet I'm still willing to grow and shift and transform just like everyone else. I was just going to say like, you know, I can't remember who said this, but one thing that I love, which I think really like encapsulates our work is you are enough as you are and there's still room for change, or I am enough as I am and there's still room for change or growth. And so I think that's ultimately what we're always trying to balance is like, yes, you know, striving for growth and deeper knowing of oneself and I don't know, challenge is should those be things that stimulate us and things we yearn for, which, you know, as, as human beings, if we have our other needs met, most of us do existentially yearn for some form of challenge or meaning. So yes, like we want to make room for all of that, but our desire for change or growth should not like negate our worth in this moment. You know, like we are exactly as we're supposed to be. We are enough as we are. We are lovable as we are. And no, you don't have to like love yourself first before you're worthy of someone else's love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into your eating disorder story and how you shifted out of that experience, because I think that so many women, specifically listeners on this podcast, are very much in the disordered eating experience. And even if it's not been diagnosed as an eating disorder, what I'm seeing so often, which is really interesting in relationship to what you just shared, is this either the two sides of the spectrum, which is the complacency model, which is the like, I'm just going to stay as I am and I don't want to change and stuck in that energy or the sabotaging energy of consistently coming forward with saying, okay, well, I, I love myself and therefore I'm going to work out religiously and I'm going to eat all these healthy foods. And then I don't feel worthy of that person that I'm becoming. So then I'm going to sabotage. And those are kind of the two pieces that I see over and over the, the stories that keep playing out. And so I'm curious what it was for you and like where the shift started to happen and where you were finally like, okay, I'm moving out of this behavior pattern because it's no longer serving me. I'm stepping into the self-love. I'm stepping into the self-worth. I'm stepping into the truth of, of who I am. And I'm finally ready to let this go. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm always so happy to share my eating disorder story. I think as, you know, recovered clinicians or, you know, I kind of think we're always like just in recovery because, you know, as women in this world, we're constantly fighting messages that tell us that we need to diet and change our bodies in certain ways and not love ourselves or embrace our bodies as they are. And so, yeah, unfortunately, I think we don't talk enough about this, but I struggled with eating disorders clinically and then also probably what you would label as disordered eating. Gosh, from probably, well, symptom-wise from about when I was like 15 until I really dove into recovery around 24, just, yeah, 24, 25, like when I finished my master's in psychology, which is so ironic. 
you know, I went through all of this school thinking I could heal myself. And that certainly wasn't what did it. I mean, I think it, it helped, but, you know, ultimately it was other things that I'll get to. So food and exercise and thinness were like very commonly discussed topics in my home growing up. And so on both sides of my family, both my parents, there's a lot of eating disorders, disordered eating, addictions, mental health issues and whatnot. And so I remember even being like, I remember becoming very aware of my body and believing that it was like too big and I was fat when I was six years old. And I remember like very clearly my brother saying to me, like, I used to be a fat baby and now I'm thin and you were like a small baby and now you're fat. And I remember like, and it's weird too, because like I look back at pictures and I was like a healthy, like regardless, you know, I mean, what size I would have been, I I shouldn't have been told that, but you know, that like siblings are, can be tough on each other. So I remember becoming very aware of my body at that age. And from there forward, I do remember like just being fixated on weight and I remember clearly stepping on and off the scale a lot, you know, as my mom did, I was really modeling that behavior. She was, you know, I'm an 80s kid or 80s baby. And so, you know, it was really like the low fat movement and she was, you know, would bake and substitute the, you know, cut out the oil and substitute the applesauce and everything was like low fat or fat free, et cetera. And so I remember like always being really aware of weight. And I remember like my dad and and mom actually talking a lot um, in a very fat phobic ways. So they would, you know, mention somebody and be like, oh, she's, she's really pretty, but she's fat, you know, or, oh, you know, oh, they've, they've gained so much weight since I saw them last. Like there were all these comments that were constantly being made. And so it was made very clear to me that like thin equals good and lovable and, you know, fat equals bad and unlovable. And, you know, my parents never put pressure on me to lose weight. Although, you know, I was always in like an acceptable body, quote unquote, acceptable body based on our societal standards, although my weight did fluctuate a lot. And so what happened, you know, I do remember dieting and stuff when I was like, even like 11, 12 with girlfriends, but I didn't start really experiencing symptoms of my eating disorder. So I thought or was aware of until I was 15 when I first started binging and purging. And that originally, again, started with dieting as it usually does. I'd been restricting. I thought that, you know, I'd been called thunder thighs by a number of people. I played soccer. I was an athlete. And so I thought, you know, I'm, this is bad. Like I'm too big. And so I need to change my body. So I tried dieting and I do actually remember very clearly the first time I ever purged and it was a really emotional experience. I remember like being at my dad's house and like having been in an argument with them and just feeling so like resentful and lonely and being overwhelmed with emotions. And I remember thinking like, this seems like a good idea. And I still like can take myself back to that place. And it's been, you know, 20 years since then almost. So as anybody who has struggled with an eating disorder before, particularly bulimia, or, you know, has struggled with binging and purging, you know that it's a really vicious cycle. And ultimately what happens is the restriction exacerbates or perpetuates the cycle. So a person, you know, myself in this case, I would restrict, which made my body believe that I was in, you know, a famine, which is what happens when we restrict or diet. And so in response to that, I was insatiably hungry. I mean, this made it so that leptin, my satiety hormone, you know, I was, wasn't as sensitive to that and a spike in ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. And it made it so that I did not feel safe around food. I would totally binge on, on foods and stuff. I wouldn't eat all day. And then after school, I'd come home and, and binge and purge. And then I would restrict again after that. And so the behavior kind of perpetuates itself. And the purging can take really like any form of what we call compensatory behavior. So in my case, it was making myself throw up. But for some people, it's laxatives. For some people, it's over-exercising. 
For some people, if you have diabetes, it's something called diabolemia, where you can use your insulin pump and, and mess with that so that you don't absorb the glucose. And so this carried on for, for a number of, of years for me, for probably about seven or so years. Actually, you know, yeah, it was really bad until I went away to university. And then just because of the nature that I was like living in dorms and it was much harder to do, I feel like the symptoms dropped off for a while then. And I kind of thought like, oh, I'm, I'm cured, you know, I'm better. But I wasn't. I was just like, you know, I didn't have the access as much to using food and, and binging and purging and stuff like that as my coping mechanism. And so I'll also say that what's important here is that a lot of people think that like eating disorders are completely um, psychological and they're really not like the biological and like I guess the, the food piece does play a huge part. A lot of the time it really is. I mean, so many of my clients who struggle with binge eating or bulimia particularly Oftentimes when they're adequately nourished consistently for a longer period of time, it brings down their episodes like significantly because really like a lot of this is just based in their biology and they're just trying to prevent themselves from um, starving. So for me, yes, there was that piece, but the psychological piece that's important to note is that my eating disorder for me was like my friend. Many of us grow up with trauma and relational trauma and everything like that. And I was one of those people. That's certainly what made me want to go into psychology and and help people. But I had a lot of suffering. You know, I definitely struggled with anxiety and depression long before I knew what those things were. And really, it's retrospectively that I can see that that's what I was dealing with. But I always felt very alone. Uh, My parents went through a very rough divorce when I was about eight, or they, they separated then and divorced years later. But it was a really messy split up and, you know, an affair. And my dad left and came back a bunch of times. And it was just like very hard on my mom who was pretty emotionally and, and physically incapacitated as a result of that. And so I think, you know, that impacted my brother and me significantly. And I definitely didn't perceive, you know, whether or not my, my perception was truth or not, that's to be determined. But my perception was that I didn't have support, really, like if I was going through something. So whether it was, you know, being like, bullied by older girls at school or whether it was like, you know, again, struggling with my body, my changing body and, you know, dealing with a lot of feelings of loneliness and anger toward my dad and stuff like that. I didn't really feel like I had anywhere to go with that. You know, I had a really good group of girlfriends, but that only went so far, especially before the time of like cell phones and stuff when you're in constant contact with them. And so I turned to my eating disorder for support, you know, between, and that's the thing, especially with like, well, eating disorders of any form are, they're really attempts at regulating our nervous system. So I would be activated and in a state of fight or flight or freeze. And in order to try to bring myself back to a state of equilibrium or a place where I was like emotionally regulated, I didn't know how to be with my difficult emotions. I didn't know how to use like self-soothing mechanisms. And so instead what I would do was I would immerse myself in like the experience of, of eating, of course, especially like highly like tasty or palatable foods is really distracting and immersive, right? And so, you know, I'd go through that process. There's all the like serotonin and dopamine in that process. And then purging is really immersive and releases endorphins. And then everything like on the whole spectrum of eating disorders from like over-exercising to restricting and feeling hungry and numbing my pain with like the hunger in my stomach, like everything was really an attempt at kind of punishing myself and not feeling like the deeper painful feelings that I didn't know how to cope with. So when I look back at my eating disorder, like I try to look back at it with a lot of compassion and and gratitude. And I know that that seems a little strange for some people and it might not fit, but I encourage people to try that because I now see like, wow, that's what allowed me to still 
go to a really like reputable university and ultimately get a master's and be where I am now. And that's what allowed for me to still have like strong friendships and, you know, play sports and do all the things that I did that kind of kept me resilient to some of what I was going through at home and in the the pain of my heart and mind at the time. So after several years with bulimia, ultimately when I was doing my master's, it kind of shifted in form to anorexia. And really what happened was I just, I'd stopped binging. I was still purging occasionally, but I was basically, I'd, I'd put such like restrictive measures on myself that I was no longer binging. I started working at a gym as a personal trainer. I think I like put a bunch of structures in place to basically help myself starve myself. And so that was a period where, of course, you know, anyone who struggled with more, you know, the more kind of like anorexic or orthorexic forms of disordered eating, I was really good at convincing myself that I was fine. I was like, I'm, I'm fine. What are you talking about? I've just lost my baby weight. I just finally lost the weight. I've been trying to lose my whole life. Oh, you know, it's only because I was binging before. That's the reason that I was that size. I'm supposed to be this size, you know, as I was having multiple family members and friends like having interventions with me and stuff. And I also just want to take a moment to acknowledge that while my eating disorder did take a more stereotypical form and that I'm like a white female who looked fairly emaciated. Eating disorders affect like all genders, all sizes, all colors. You know, they're very diverse. And just because a person, like a person does not have to be emaciated to be struggling with anorexia or a restrictive eating disorder. And in fact, like all eating disorders are restrictive disorders because even binge eating disorder is usually precedented with restriction. And that's like what leads to it. So I just want to acknowledge that because unfortunately, there's actually a lot of like stigma and discrimination in the eating disorder treatment field. And a lot of people in larger bodies don't receive the same kind of help and support that people in smaller bodies do because they're perceived as like not thin enough or not sick enough when they could actually be extremely malnourished. So ultimately, then I was in this place where it manifested more as anorexia. And I was really convincing myself that I was fine, but I wasn't fine. I mean, and when I look back in terms of like my mental health and how deeply depressed I was at that time and anxious. I was so, so unhappy and I wasn't present. I remember like not realizing just how depressed I was until I went to uh, Cirque du Soleil with my mom. We went to Vegas. Like I think it was the year I was finishing my master's or maybe it was like my my second year of my master's. And we went and saw Cirque du Soleil and we saw the, that show Love by the Beatles music and it's Cirque du Soleil. And I remember feeling something as I watched the show. And I remember thinking, I can't remember the last time I felt in my body. Like it was such a, like, I remember it just being like a really like encouraging in the sense that I was like, oh my gosh, I can feel, but it was also like really disturbing because I was like, I had been in a relationship for a couple of years at that point that was really like not serving for my mental health, not because of him, but it, because it was like classic anxious avoidant dynamic stuff. And, you know, we were just, we didn't have the communication skills and I didn't have the self-awareness to know what I was dealing with. And I was projecting a lot of my own pain onto him. And so I remember having like that thought, like, wow, I like something really is like not okay with me. And, you know, there were more signs that I couldn't deny. I remember like I had keys to the gym that I worked at because obviously I worked there. And I remember like breaking into the gym in the middle of the night to run on the treadmill because I like had a flight the next day, like, and just things that like did not seem like, whereas with bulimia, I knew it wasn't quote unquote normal because I was making myself throw up. When I was struggling with the more anorexic expression of my eating disorder, it was a lot easier for me to like be in denial. But these things were happening where I was like, I don't think I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what happened, I was so lucky, Sarah, because like so many people 
they are the ones who are like, I need help. And they reach out when they're struggling with things, something like anorexia that is like very, very um, seductive. It's a really seductive eating disorder that basically convinces you that thinness is more important than your relationship and your friends and your family and your work and your health and your happiness and your sleep and your period and like all this kind of stuff. And what happened for me was my boyfriend, like at that point of, he'd been, we'd been together for about three years and I totally thought that I was going to marry him. I think it was when I was like, I was just about 25. I just finished my master's. I thought I was going to marry him. And I was like, totally like, okay, like this is it. We're good. And even though I was like deeply miserable and he pretty out of the blue, in my opinion, although I'm sure I could have seen signs now looking back, he, he dumped me and he left me for someone else. And it was like very much my worst fear because that's what happened to my mom. And, you know, I watched my mom struggle to get out of bed for years and cry almost every day for a decade. And I was like, oh my God, this is my worst fear. Like what is going to happen? I won't come back from this. And I was devastated. I mean, many people have been heartbroken before, I'm sure listening to this. And it was pain that I'd never experienced before. And I truly didn't think I could get through it. You know, I definitely had moments where I felt suicidal and moments where like I could not function. Like the first week I remember, I, I don't think I didn't change my clothes for like a week and was obviously taking all sorts of things to sleep. And it was just in like a haze. And what happened though, when he dumped me was, it was actually like very helpful for my recovery because there were a couple of things. The first one was that I had believed either consciously or unconsciously based on thinness being so valued in my family that if I were thin, no one could hurt. Like I was like, this is my insurance or my armor against pain. And I didn't know how to be with pain. I mean, as evidenced, of course, by me using, you know, bulimia as a coping mechanism and like struggling with so much depression and anxiety and self-loathing. And so I didn't know how to be with it. And I thought that if I could keep myself really thin, then I could protect myself from like the pain of being a human. And the reality is, you know, and this is the more spiritual approach that I ultimately came to, but life is painful, right? Like that's the first noble truth in Buddhism. And this really taught me like, okay, like you can't avoid pain, no matter how much you try to avoid it or try to orchestrate your life to avoid it, which really is at the root of perfectionism, which is what I specialize in. But no matter how much you try to do that, your life is still going to be painful. You are still going to encounter anxiety and sadness and of course loss and everything that comes along with that and anger and hurt and betrayal and disappointment and the list goes on right of difficult emotions and so this moment when he left me i was like but wait that's not the reality i was sold i was told you know both by my family but also by the media that women are constantly inundated with that if I'm thin, I'm lovable. If I'm thin, like I keep the guy. And so this kind of turned my world upside down. And I was like, okay, well, fuck, I have no ground to stand on. But also like I started to question more some of those messages that I've been told. And I started becoming a lot more feminist and like learn reading up on a lot more like feminist literature and recognizing like shit, how oppressive these messages are and and feeling kind of feeling angry and also realizing that why was I killing myself literally for something that actually I wasn't going to achieve, or at least I wasn't guaranteed to achieve through that? So that was the first thing that was like really helpful. The second thing was that I was forced into feeling my feelings. And before that, I think I'd been somewhat successful in numbing and avoiding them. Like I would feel them constantly, but then I would, yes, binge and purge, or I would like go kickbox the heavy bag in my basement while listening to Eminem, or I would like go get drunk with my friends or like go like sneak out and like sleep with like the the bad guy, you know, at school or whatever. Like I would feel my feelings and I would 
do something to try to numb them. And I would beat myself up for it. And I would tell myself like, you're weak, you're pathetic. Again, I mean, obviously, like I've done a lot of work around like my family and stuff like that. And now I see like just how courageous my mom was. But at the time I was like, you know, you're being pathetic like your mom because I didn't have any respect for her for how she handled my parents split up. And of course, you know, being deeply humbled and having my own heart broken, I can only imagine how that must have been to try to raise two kids after being left for a much younger woman. But ultimately, I was forced into feeling my feelings. And I remember I would wake up every day and I would like feel the pain come flooding in. I would usually be dreaming that I was back together with my ex. And I would wake up and realize that I wasn't together with him. And I would have this flood of pain come in and I would try to push it away. And I'd be like, you're better than him. He's not worthy of you, whatever, like get over it, move on. And I remember finally one day, like after a couple of days or weeks or whatever of this happening, because everything blurred together, I remember saying like, okay, sadness, you can be here. And I just like accepted that sadness was there and I didn't judge myself for it. And what I didn't realize at the time was that that was my first experience of really practicing mindfulness. And it was interesting because around the same time, a friend gave me the book, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron, which was like a life-changing manual for me and really like an introduction to Buddhism and or Buddhist philosophy and applying it to this kind of situation. So I, I had that and I was kind of learning about this stuff in my, I had learned about it in grad school. It's what we call like the third wave of, of psychology or of cognitive behavioral therapy. So dialectical behavioral therapy, compassion-focused therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. These are all very like mindfulness-based therapies. So I've been like learning about it. And, you know, the other thing too was that I'd had so many over-exercising injuries that my physical therapist was like, Megan, you cannot work out anymore. If you keep working out, if you keep running, you'll never run again. The only thing you can do is yoga. And I was very resistant to yoga. I'd tried it before. It didn't burn enough calories. Like it was boring. It was uncomfortable. I hated stretching, but I was worried about, you know, my mobility and I was terrified of not being able to use exercise as a coping mechanism. So I listened to him and, you know, I was still quite obedient being the perfectionist that I was and I started going to yoga. And so the yoga coupled with this sort of like organic mindfulness I was practicing myself with myself, along with sort of having these like Buddhist and spiritual influences coming at me again through like friends and then also through my education, I started to actually really dive into Buddhism and spirituality. And I started to realize that like, oh my gosh, I have been creating so much suffering for myself through judging myself for my difficult emotions and criticizing myself and expecting that I'm supposed to be perfect and not like showing up for myself and abandoning like the wounded inner child inside of me. And so I really like devoted myself to that work. And don't get me wrong. I mean, this was very much two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, seven steps back. There were many like flare-ups or quote-unquote relapses, which I hesitate to call relapses because I think it's very much part of the process of recovery. But, you know, that I guess like that all happened in 2011. And I mean, obviously it's 2020 now, it's been nine years. But really since then, it continues to be a process of like really like practicing self-love and we can get into like the nuances of self-compassion and stuff like that, but always trying to fight back against these messages that we're surrounded by that say we're not enough and continue to work toward like accepting myself both physically and emotionally. And, you know, I'm actually being really confronted with that right now in, in this like pandemic situation, which I can get into if you're interested in it. But yes, that's kind of like, <laughs> I know that was a, a while of me explaining the story of my eating disorder. But do you have any questions, Sarah? Do you want me to kind of like keep going from 2011 to now? Or like, yeah, let me pause for a moment and let you reflect. <laughs> well, no, I absolutely love that because 
And I love that you shared your story. And I felt so much compassion in your story as you shared it, because I saw so many mere reflections of my own experience with my eating disorders, including the addiction getting transferred and the eating disorders getting transferred. And as we think that we're healing and we're like, okay, this doesn't impact me anymore because I'm not binging anymore. Then for me, it went from binging to anorexia to orthoanorexia to laxatives. It just kept getting transferred over and over until I was willing and able to look at myself and say, yes, I'm sad. And because I'm sad, I am causing suffering on myself. And I think what's so profound in your healing was it was very similar to mine where I did the exact same things. Like I had to dive into mindfulness and meditation and yoga. I practiced spirituality. I looked at the Buddhist philosophies in which I grew up with. I started thinking about what was happening in my own internal experience within my mind and cultivating a level of self-love that I didn't have before. And I, I think it's important for people to hear that these are options and yes, therapy is so important in getting help and asking for help. But there are also these other modalities and these healing experiences that very much influence our relationship to ourselves. And as you were speaking, which I I would love to dive into the perfectionism side of it, because I had this moment when you were talking about how when we break up with someone, how that relates to our internal experience. And what I see so often, especially right now with reality TV, when we break up with someone, there's usually two models that we're taught. It's either binge on a bunch of food, which we see all the memes for that and women joke about that, or it's the revenge, go to the gym and work out to get back at your ex. But we're not seeing a lot of, well, what about the self-care? What about the mindfulness? What about the cultivating a level of worthiness that is completely disconnected from the relationship where you are worthy of love, regardless of that person who you were dating that broke up with you. It's like, there's almost more self-harm being taught to us than the cultivation of self-care and self-love. And so if you could talk a little bit about that in relationship to perfectionism and how we've seen that perpetuated over and over with the memes, the Instagram, now TikTok, like all of these things are just a constant reminder that we're not worthy enough. And I actually don't know what the solution is. I keep trying to figure out what is the thing? What is the practice? What is the tools? What is the mindset to really remove us from that? But it always comes back to self-awareness for me. And so I'm curious for you what that is, like being aware of it so that when we see it, it doesn't impact us to the extent that it would have if we were unconscious. Totally. No, I mean, it's such a good point. And I think like a few things come up for me and definitely let me know if I if I don't ultimately answer the question because it's just like various different tangents that I have. The first thing that comes up for me is, look, like for me, the timing of going through heartbreak while also going through recovery or heartbreak spurring my recovery was such that, yes, like I did have to learn how to be with myself and be with my emotional discomfort. But the other really important piece that I think gets missed in terms of the recovery conversation is that I had to give myself unconditional permission to eat. And I definitely did, you know, eat emotionally. And, you know, I practice from an intuitive eating standpoint, and there's definitely room for emotional eating in that. I mean, we want to ultimately expand our our arsenal. So that's not our only tool for managing discomfort. But at the time, I was so undernourished or so malnourished that my body, I was not in touch with my hunger and satiety cues. And so on the journey to ultimately getting to intuitive eating, where I 
could, you know, like eat when I was hungry and stop when I was full and be intentional about overeating on holidays or still having cake, even though I'm full and like, that's fine, whatever, like you're choosing to still have like some ice cream when I'm feeling low, but being really intentional about that, like all of the aspects of intuitive eating um, that I now experience today that have a lot of research behind them as being the most sustainable and mental health supporting method of, of eating. In order to get to that, I had to start with allowing myself to overeat in my eyes, you know, or to, you know, you see this a lot in terms of recovery, especially from restrictive eating disorders. Like there will be women who'll be like, I ate, and I won't use numbers because it can be triggering, but like I ate X number of calories a day, which we would think is like a really high number of calories. And I think because I have thin privilege, which means I was born into like a more socially acceptable body. And when I am in a recovered place, I don't have to worry about discrimination when I leave my house or people yelling comments at me or like not fitting into airplane seats and stuff like that. Because I have thin privilege, it was easier for me to, I mean, it was still very challenging, don't get me wrong. It was spiritual shit recovering and taking on essentially half my body weight. But it was easier in the sense that people celebrated my recovery. Like I had family members and friends being like, you look so healthy, which of course was like so hard to hear. Right. But like, they're like, you know, you look so healthy and like, oh, you're glowing. Like, oh, I'm so happy. I was so worried about you, stuff like that, which was very hard to hear. But I wasn't having family members being like, oh, I'm concerned about you. I'm worried you're going to get diabetes. Oh, did you know that obesity is like the number one killer? Like all of these sorts of things that are very shaming and it makes it really hard for people in larger bodies to, to recover from eating disorders. So this is all just to say that in terms of like the self-care piece for me, eating was self-care and I was nourishing my body and I was recovering and I was learning. I was basically teaching my body that food is not scarce anymore. And so for those of us, especially if we've been restricting or dieting for a long time, this is what I'm noticing with a lot of clients right now who are stressing out in quarantine because they don't have any structure and they've stockpiled food and it like a lot of it is processed or non-perishable and things like that. And they have it in excess and they're worried, they're afraid of it and they're worried that they just like can't control themselves and that feeling usually comes from restriction so for me in order to like relearn that food is abundant and there's always going to be more of it you know i'm lucky enough to not have food scarcity in my life for me to like relearn and for my cells to really like learn that you don't have to feel anxious around food and like it's going to be there and if you want the ice cream you can have the ice cream you don't have to eat the whole thing of ice cream and start the diet again tomorrow like for me to relearn that I had to give myself that unconditional permission to eat. Now, I think it's very individual. Self-care looks different for everybody. And for some people on their recovery journey, it's they feel safer with something called structured eating where they're like, okay, I'm going to have three meals and three snacks a day. And that can be very uncomfortable as well. Like that can definitely feel like a lot for some people or they feel like they're not used to having like these like smaller portions more frequently and things like that. So those are things that I would encourage anyone who, who wants support in their recovery to work with like a non-diet dietitian on figuring out what works best for them. But ultimately, a big part of like the self-care of recovery is learning how to like nourish our body and teach our bodies that food is not scarce because that takes away like the restrictive element and helps like reset like our hormonal response to eating and our insulin and like all of that kind of stuff and make it so that we just don't have the same kinds of emotional like we don't fear food as much, you know, we don't fear it. And we're not like constantly fixated on it. Because again, eating disorders are very seductive. And even in like the recovery community, there can be diet culture that comes into play. So it can still be coming from like a really restrictive mentality, or there can be a belief that like, 
if anyone recovers from an eating disorder, then it means their body's going to look a certain way. Whereas unfortunately, I mean, or maybe I shouldn't put a judgment on it, but like unfortunately in our society, because we still celebrate this thin ideal and decide what bodies are acceptable and aren't acceptable, a lot of people in recovery have to come to terms with the fact that like, I was, I even had a client talking about this yesterday, but like the body that they had in their sophomore year of high school, you know, after being on like a really restrictive diet is probably not the body they're going to have if they're coming at, you know, life from a place where they're just like building a life that brings them joy and building a relationship to food in their body that brings them joy and feels healthy and then seeing where their body lands. And so there's a lot of like grieving around this thin ideal that a lot of people have to do where I know for me, it was like, I had to thrift away all my, you know, size blank jeans and be like, okay, instead of thinking, oh, when I lose the weight, I'll fit into these again. I have to accept that I would probably only fit into these again if I were making some major, major sacrifices in my life that made life not worth living for me. And so I get to choose between two things. It's either I'm going to be as thin as I want to be and I'm not going to have joy in any other area of my life and I'm going to be chronically overwhelmed with anxiety and depression, which gets into the perfectionism thing that I'll, I'll get to next. Or I can have like a full life where I can like really feel good about the work that I do and be present and I can have strong friendships and I can not be distracted by thoughts about like food or my body and I can date and I can have sex with the lights on and I can have a period and I can have my health and I can be focused and I don't have to be hungry all the time and I can like really love myself and appreciate my body for its functionality. But in order to have all those things, I am going to have to accept that like my body is not going to look how diet culture tells me it's supposed to look or how I imagine it was supposed to look. I love that. Thank you for sharing because that's what I went through. I had to mourn that I would never be a size zero or two again. And I had to go through what does it mean to me to nourish my body in other ways? And what are the repercussions of not nourishing my body? And then what is the benefit of? And when we focus on our why, our purpose, our mission, what we really deeply, truly want on this planet and connect to that, I just believe that the nourishment piece is integrated. And I, I think it takes time and it takes patience and it takes a lot of cultivating a level of forgiveness for our past self, but I do truly trust that we can get there. And it's important. And it's important that we stand in that so that we shift other people's experience to what is, I hate the word normal, but what, what we deem as diet culture and, and normalcy, which is really not what should be normal. Hey there, friend. Are you loving this podcast? I want to continue to support you. So the simplest way to do this is to head over to sarahannstewart.com and pop into the newsletter. Doing this ensures that you never, ever miss any details of our new projects, products, upcoming events, or issues that are near or dear to my heart. You're also going to get access to the movement. This is the inner circle of people just like you standing in their power to bring more truth and a new level of consciousness where all individuals get to live a diet-free life in a body that they love. So pop on over to sarahannstewart.com and subscribe, and I'll see you on the inside. I think, yes, like related to that um, in terms of, of healing and learning like new coping skills and ways of being with our emotional discomfort, which is such a huge part of it, brings me kind of to the kind of the perfectionism conversation. And for anyone who isn't familiar with attachment theory, I really encourage you to read up on it because it was really interesting for me understanding that so much of my desire to numb my emotions was because of like 
my fear of abandonment and my inability to be with myself because I did not show up for myself. I really abandoned myself in moments and felt a lot of shame. And so cultivating self-compassion, was, which is what I'll get to next, was a game changer for me in learning how to be with my emotional discomfort and choose more serving coping mechanisms. And yes, sometimes those coping mechanisms still were, you know, having the pint of ice cream or whatever. And still to this day, I mean, you know, it's been a while since I've had a pint of ice cream, but I have no problem doing that. You know, like if I, if I felt like that's what I needed. And so basically with, with uh, how this relates to perfectionism, people often think that perfectionism means that, you know, you do everything perfectly or everything needs to be at right angles or whatever. But really um, the way I define perfectionism based on, you know, more than a decade now of working with clients in this area is uh, I define it with four characteristics. So the first is challenges regulating or being with uncomfortable emotions. Now, as humans, we seek pleasure and avoid pain, right? Like that's very evolutionarily adaptive. We're, we're programmed to find our uncomfortable emotions very difficult to sit with because they're there as signals for us to pay attention to. So we react and try to turn them off. You know, like emotions are pro-social and they're there to keep us alive and keep us in groups because at one point, back in cave person days, hundreds of thousands of years ago, we needed to be in groups or else we wouldn't get in on the kill and be able to eat. We wouldn't be protected and be able to sleep. And really, like most importantly, we wouldn't be able to procreate. So they're meant to keep us in groups. They're meant to keep us relational. So things like loneliness are meant to feel uncomfortable because they make us want to connect. Anxiety is meant to make us feel uncomfortable because it makes us act like, watch out, you know, you're, you're, there's a threat here. Guilt is meant to make you want to repair whatever transgression you've, you've committed because, you know, there's a relationship that you may be threatening and, again, could get you thrown out of the group. Shame is the same kind of thing, but basically shame and guilt differ in that Guilt is usually around like an action and relationship you need to repair. And shame is more around like there's a threat that you might be ostracized from the group because you're doing something antisocial. So ultimately, you know, I could go on and explain every emotion's utility. Anger too is one I like to mention because anger people, a lot of people will say like anger is a bad emotion. Anger is not a bad emotion. Violence, aggression, those things we could probably agree usually are not serving, although sometimes there's a place for them. But ultimately, anger is there to say, like, a boundary's been crossed, you've been mistreated, you need to advocate for someone, or there's an injustice that's occurred. And women would not be where we are today in terms of, like, the women's movement and trying to achieve some form of equality if it weren't for anger. That has, like, helped us mobilize toward action. So basically, as I this is coming back to perfectionism, emotions are meant to feel uncomfortable, or at least the uncomfortable ones are supposed to be uncomfortable because we're supposed to pay attention to them. However, some of us grow up in situations where we're more able to be with our discomfort than others, and we tend to often use unserving coping mechanisms to numb or avoid our emotional discomfort. So when we we numb, it's something like what I did. I mean, I was using an eating disorder, but many people will use drugs or alcohol or porn or sex or work or their phone or whatever. Like there's some sort of thing that they may be using to numb. And then avoidance, oftentimes we orchestrate our lives so that we don't feel a difficult feeling or we try to orchestrate our lives so we don't feel a difficult feeling, which is what I was doing by, you know, trying to be thin and avoid emotional discomfort. But I was also never doing anything that I thought I might fail at, like things that scared me or I couldn't be sure I would be successful at, I didn't do. I didn't try out for like the rep soccer team or like the volleyball team or like any of these things that I wanted to, you know, I wouldn't speak publicly. I wouldn't do things where I thought there might be a chance I would feel humiliation or embarrassment or rejection. I wouldn't ask people on dates, like that kind of thing, right? So a lot of us, this is where like more classic versions of perfectionism come in. We don't do what we think, what we're not sure we can be successful in, 
or we hyper prepare, we like over, over prepare and like study for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours for the test or do everything we can to make sure something is perfect and we won't be exposed to a difficult feeling. So first quality of perfectionism, difficulty is being with uncomfortable emotions. Second quality, your self-worth is dependent on outcomes, achievements, and appearance. And so more like external sources, and there's a need for that kind of like external validation. And we believe that our self-worth is is dependent on that those things rather than just like being innately worthy because we're our imperfect selves and we're lovable alongside all of that. So again, this is where like you see expressions of this and people experience expressions of this by being like, you know, I need to make more money. Like I need to be thinner. I need to be more beautiful. You know, I need to perform more. I need to produce more. And that's where we ultimately feel valid and worthy is based on like like our productivity or our appearance or or whatever. So that's the second piece. The third piece is having like these unrealistically high inflexible expectations. And the really important piece here to recognize is that they're like inflexible and unrealistic. So you wouldn't have the same expectations for someone else usually that you would for yourself. And even if you did and they didn't meet them, you might like make them flexible based on how they're feeling. So, you know, if you had an expectation for a friend to, I don't know, help you move and their cat died or they had like debilitating PMS and cramps or something, or they were sick and, you know, something along those lines and and they couldn't do it, you would be like, oh my gosh, like, this is really shitty and it sucks and it's inconvenient, but also like, I don't take this personally and take care of yourself and you would understand it. Right. Whereas like we aren't flexible with ourselves in terms of our expectations, they're unrealistically high. And no matter if we haven't slept the night before, if we're not feeling well, if we're going through something emotionally, we tend not to adjust them. And the final piece, which is where I really hone in with people is that we have this critical inner voice. So we tend to be really hard on ourselves and we often internalize like a voice of criticism that maybe came from like a parent or a sibling or a teacher or a babysitter or something along those lines, sometimes a relationship. And really also, especially as women, there's this critical voice that we internalize that's just one of like societal messages that says like, you're unworthy, you're unlovable, you're fat, you're not this enough, you're not that enough, you're not a good enough partner or housewife or sister or daughter or student or employee or whatever. There's just like this constant shame that we internalize. So you take all of those things together. And this is really like how I conceptualize and understand the perfectionism that pretty much every human struggles with to some extent. And certainly my clients bring forward to me. And so really like what we're trying to do as we we recover from that, or at least get to know it really well, is we're trying to change our relationship to ourselves because with that voice of self-criticism all the time, nipping at our heels, ready to criticize anything that we do, especially with these like unrealistically high inflexible expectations, and then, you know, not meeting those expectations, we experience discomfort and our self-worth is shattered because as I said, self-worth is dependent on outcomes, achievements, and appearance. And then we feel shame disappointment, humiliation, anger, frustration, anxiety, all of these sorts of things. And like I said, the fourth thing, or the first thing that I mentioned is that we don't know how to be with those feelings. So basically we're running from ourselves all the time. We're always feeling super anxious and we're always basically afraid of like that critical inner voice that's gonna be beating us up. So the first place that I try to help people intervene is really helping them learn how to be with their emotional discomfort and change that critical voice that abandons them and beats them up for their humanness and change that to one that's like more self-compassionate and understanding and empathic and supportive. And from there, they can start practicing more self-care and reaching out to places of connection rather than being paralyzed by shame in those moments. 
So yes, okay, but I'll stop again here because I know I've been talking for a while again. Um, and does, is this making sense or is yes, it like, yes, yes, 100%. It's making so much sense. And I, again, just in awe because I'm witnessing myself, even as you're sharing, even since this morning, just the critical self-talk, the perfectionism, the stories that come forward. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, yeah, I noticed that this morning. And how can I shift that in the moment to upgrade the story of perfectionism that I'm holding? And so I'm curious, is it really just pattern interruption or how is it that someone would go about if they start to realize this because they're going to be more aware from listening to your wisdom and they become conscious of this voice and conscious of this inner critic and conscious of potentially the voice of their mother from their childhood, then is it in the moment, the pattern interruption of, of shifting that story or what would be kind of the next couple of steps? Totally. Yeah. So first of all, like a caveat to remind everyone is that perfectionism comes into every process, right? And it even comes into our process of recovering from perfectionism. So I'll often have clients who will come back like after week two and they'll be like, I'm still hard on myself. What's wrong with me? I'm such a failure. Like I can't do anything right. I can't even do therapy right, right? And so like this is lifelong work, right? And it is a constant practice. As Pema Chodron calls it, we have so many opportunities for awakening that we're constantly met with. And so I try to, first of all, help people reframe their emotional discomfort as opportunity versus a sign that their survival is being threatened, you know, or they're they're failing in some way. And so first trying to help people dismantle or diffuse or separate like shame from their emotional discomfort so they can actually see it as like, okay, this is just, I'm just being a human right now having feelings. And actually right now during this pandemic is like a really great, I've been meaning to write about this, but like, it's, it's a really great opportunity for those of us, at least who are privileged enough to be able to use it as one. I recognize, obviously there are a lot of like single parents who can barely keep themselves afloat right now, who maybe don't have like the time and emotional capacity to work on this stuff. But like, if you do have a bit of space that perhaps has opened up for you during this time, it's a really beautiful opportunity to be like, okay, I'm experiencing some emotional difficulty right now or discomfort right now. Let me get curious about that. And let me see how I respond to myself in these moments of discomfort. And even starting with like developing or making more robust your emotional lexicon. And what I mean by that is like helping you start to identify what these emotions are, because we live in such an like pathologizing culture that makes it seem like if we feel anything uncomfortable, we're not grateful enough or we're being negative or there's something wrong with us. And so we don't tend to like really sit with our emotions and get to know them. And so even spending time being like, oh, what is, am I feeling guilt or shame right now? You know, am I feeling anxiety or is that frustration? Like, I I can't really tell what this is. And helping people get really curious about it so that you can give yourself what you need and actually hear what that emotion is trying to tell you and be able to tell whether or not it's lying to you or it's actually telling you something you might want to hear. So I would say for people, the first thing is like, give yourself permission to feel uncomfortable and actually try to see it as an opportunity for your growth. And I know that's easier said than done because emotions are fucking painful, especially the the really difficult ones. But ultimately, when you start to practice more self-compassion and give yourself this permission to be in a place of discomfort, you'll notice that you actually alleviate a lot of the suffering that we create through judging ourselves. And that's there's this saying like pain time struggle equals suffering. Again, as I mentioned earlier, life is painful. You are going to experience pain multiple times in this lifetime. I mean, countless, countless times. But really, especially right now, there are very few people who aren't experiencing different types of pain as a result of everything that we're going through in the world right now. And so 
try to give yourself permission to feel those things and try to get to know them. And you don't need to change them or push them away and know by acknowledging them, you're not going to make them worse, but you're actually going to be able to then decide, what do I need in this moment? Do I need to give myself self-compassion? Do I need to practice self-care in some way? Do I need to go journal? Do I need to talk to a friend? Like, do I need some connection in this moment? Like, what, what do I need? So yeah, so first thing, really trying to start to recognize those emotions. And then the next thing is starting to really try to understand, like, what is your relationship to yourself? How many, when you are like being hard on yourself or beating yourself up, whether it's about something like physical, which many women I'm sure can relate to when it comes to body image and recovering from eating disorders, but also just like everything in the day to day, you know, like we were talking about this offline before we started recording, Sarah, but you know, I'll share with everyone that this work is lifelong, right? And it's interesting because so much of this work I have done over the last almost decade at this point, really intrapersonally, like it's been very much like me and my relationship to self. And I've come to a place where I feel pretty good about myself as I am in like the privacy of my own home and like not necessarily in relationship and stuff. And I really like, I do really like love and appreciate myself. And I certainly still have my like dark days. And, you know, sometimes I just feel really low for reasons I can't explain. And there are times where shame, I'm overcome with shame and I can recognize it and try to dismantle it. And there are times where, of course, I I fuck up and I make mistakes and I hurt friends' feelings or I do things that are shitty and I have to have words with myself and be like, okay, that wasn't in line with my integrity. How do I repair this? But you know, what's been interesting is that for the past six Six weeks, a little over six weeks now, I've been living with my boyfriend's family in Maryland. And we came here because, you know, he and I had come down for his niece's bat mitzvah and we packed clothes for four days. And then New York got really bad in the time that we were here. And we were like, I don't think it's a good idea to go back to the city. So we stayed here. And I think it's pretty natural for anyone under the best of circumstances to not like ideally want to move in with their boyfriend's family. Like that's a lot. We weren't even living together before this happened. And so I'm, I'm practicing a lot of compassion toward myself for some of the feelings that I'm having. But what I'm also noticing is how much I am projecting my own shame into these relationships and into the fact that like, I feel very exposed. And I feel like many of the areas where I have shame, like, because again, I didn't, a lot of times, like I, I reflect back on my childhood and I'm like, yeah, I didn't grow up with like family dinners and many boundaries or structure or like know how to do things like quote unquote, I didn't really learn how to do a lot of things like the right way. I kind of figured it out myself, which, you know, made me really independent. And I think in, in many ways, like a good entrepreneur, but it also made us so that I have a troubles asking for help and B, I have a lot of shame around like my way of doing things and whether or not I'm like, I have shame around being kind of a quote unquote mess, both literally in the sense that like I'm kind of chaotic and like when I cook, it's like the kitchen's a disaster and whatever. But then I also like have a lot of emotions. I'm a very sensitive person and I feel like the spectrum of emotions. And like I said, I mean, I I have days that sometimes like just I like, you know, I feel the heaviness of the world and I I've learned to like love that part of myself, but I haven't learned how to be with that part of myself when I feel like I'm on stage constantly because I'm living with my boyfriend's family. And so what has been interesting for me is it feels like kind of I'm like leveling up and I'm like, wow, this is like the next level of my work. I have to learn how to accept myself, not just in the privacy of like my New York apartment, but within the context of like a family that I'm I'm really trying to make a good impression on and I'm trying to like you know show up for and be in a good mood and be like engaging and kind of like the perfect like whatever I am not daughter-in-law but like hopefully one day daughter-in-law to be kind of thing and yet 
I'm exhausted, you know, and I'm, I'm like noticing, I'm like, I feel like I'm performing a lot of the time and I'm not just letting myself be my full self because I'm so afraid that if I'm me in all my mess, I will be rejected and I will be unlovable and they will decide I'm not worthy of their family. And, you know, my boyfriend will decide he's actually been dating a woman that like he didn't see this side of her and he'll reject that part of me. And while it's been deeply uncomfortable, it's also been like really fucking healing. Like I feel like I've done more healing and growth in these past six weeks than I have like in years because I've been like thrown into the deep end. And so I guess this is all just to say that like this work is, I mean, it is our life's work, I think, to learn to really embrace our full authentic selves and show our shadow sides or what we perceive as like these dark, unlovable, rejected parts of ourselves to others. Assuming we feel safe in those relationships, I should give that caveat because you definitely right. don't want to be fully vulnerable and open with, you know, in an abusive relationship or in a context of a friendship or something that you don't feel safe. But if we can actually show those parts of ourselves to others and feel like we're actually not rejected, that's like a real opportunity for like a next level of work when it comes to self-acceptance. You may have heard the saying like we're wounded in relationship and we heal in relationship. So my sense is that with this work, the first step is very much like our relationship to self and practicing self-compassion is is not easy. It feels foreign. It feels contrived. It feels very uncomfortable if we've been hard on ourselves for our whole lives. And we've, the other thing I should say too, is that self-criticism it serves a purpose, right? Like, especially if we grow up in a household where we are being criticized a lot, or there isn't room for failure, or maybe we're being bullied at school or something like that, which is another place that these internal critical voices can come from. It serves a purpose because it protects us, right? And it makes sure that we don't take risks that would leave us vulnerable to attack, or we beat ourselves up before someone else does. So we get very used to feeling like we're not enough and feeling a lot of shame and beating ourselves up and not accepting compliments and not ever like getting too close to people and stuff. And so it can feel very foreign to undertake this process. And I really encourage people to like stick with it and make space for the discomfort and baby steps in terms of like practicing the self-compassion, which there's sort of a formula to, I mean, it's really mindfulness, which is again, the non-judgmental self-accept or non-judgmental acceptance of your emotions and not trying to like push them away, not trying to explain them or I don't know, psychoanalyze them or anything, just making space for them. The second piece is self-kindness. So saying to yourself what you would say to another person or a loved one, that's like a supportive, encouraging statement. And the third piece is what we call common humanity. So it's basically recognizing that, yes, like, you're feeling an uncomfortable emotion. That's what it means to be human. You know, yes, you've done something imperfect. You fucked up in some way. You're a human being. Like, there's room for imperfection. There are like millions, if not billions, of other people out there struggling with similar feelings to you right now. So, we go through that process, but I just really want to encourage people to stick with it. And maybe you do recruit in the support of a therapist or look toward your animals if you have pets, you know, for support and for to recruit compassion. Or think of like a person in your life, whether it was like a parent or grandparent or coach or sibling or someone who you did feel a lot of compassion from to start trying to cultivate those feelings for yourself. And ultimately, it is a journey. And you start in the like intrapersonal or like, the individual. And then my sense and my personal experiences, whether it's in therapy or in relationship, or, you know, in my case, like within the context of a family, being able to (laughs) actually start to really like show those parts of yourself and Mm -hmm. experience that you're still accepted. Like that's where the healing really happens. Yes. That's what Craig and I have been in because what we realized metaphorically 
we're in a box now. We can't get out of the box. We can't run. We're we're like in it. It's been really interesting because both of us run our own businesses. We have our own very independent lives. And I think we're very interdependent in the sense where we support one another and we have built entrepreneur collectives together and we do a lot of things together and we have very independent lives. So when we feel anything that isn't what we would believe to be the best for our partner or in the highest good of our partnership, we would just run away. So in this experience has been this opportunity to say, I am fucking angry. I am sad. I am lonely. I am frustrated. Can you hold space for this? And allowing ourselves to be okay with that emotion and then trusting that the other person is going to love you unconditionally, even in that mess, even being that disconnected human who doesn't know literally what the fuck is going on in the uncertainty of all of this and just witnessing that partnership and and being able to heal together has been really beautiful. And I can tell you the first two days of quarantine, we were like, nope, not going to happen. This is not going to work. We were so mad at each other. We spent four hours in therapy to get through just two days of the tension that was arising, recognizing what we were going to go into, not knowing how long it was going to be. And I just offer that for anyone who is going through this is that Craig and I have been through years of therapy, years of coaching, years of workshops. And yet in our own experience, we were so challenged to find each other until we had outside support. And so I just offer that because I think we beat ourselves up when we witness ourselves in the emotion and then we blame ourselves and we go in the shame, this guilt that I shouldn't be like this in front of my partner. And sometimes it does take bringing someone else in to hold the space for both of you. Totally. And I think, again, like, you know, this is so cliche therapist talk, but like communication is, it sounds like, you know, really is a, is a strength of your guys's and it is the game changing tool in a moment like that, because to be able to say like, this is what I'm experiencing right now. And this is what I need will help so that your partner doesn't misinterpret your, you know, what they might perceive as, as their fault, or maybe it is their fault. Like who knows, you know, but like they might, they'll create a story around it unless you, you explain what's happening for you. And so the fact that you're able to be like, we need some support here. I'm going through this. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I need. And for them to be able to be like, either I can, or I can't give that to you, but like, let's figure out how we can try to make sure that that's given to you. Like that's how we can continue showing up for each other and helping ourselves feel validated in our experience. Because I think, you know, the other thing, and this is a a subject for another podcast for sure, but like we tend to pick partners who replicate many of the qualities that our parents had, you know, and we, we learn how to love in our familial dynamics is how we learn what love is. And so as much as like we may pick partners who are, are vastly different from our parents were, there usually are certain qualities that are representative or sort of symbolic of a a parent or, you know, a a sibling or something like that. And they can be very triggering and they can bring up all of our old wounds. And so our work, you know, we really have an opportunity in our adult romantic relationships and friendships, you know, in many ways, but like more so romantic relationships because they're so like ever present and intense. We have a real opportunity to do a lot of the healing work that we weren't able to do, you know, as children and to also not let our childhood trauma ruin our, our adult relationships. Right. I know. And I was, I was laughing when you were sharing about (laughs) being in partnership right now and then having to live with his parents and not having to, you guys are making the choice and I know you're very grateful for it, but I I was just laughing because before 
we got on this call, we were just talking about how literally we are thrown into this experience and yet it is for our best. It is for a blessing that is on the other side of it. It is for growth. It is for opportunity. It's for our expansion, awareness, consciousness. It's all the good things. And yet in it, it can feel very much challenged. And so I'm excited for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, I am too. And in my moments where I'm like, <laughs> like last week when I was like, hi to PMS, like definitely was not feeling super excited for myself. But yes, with like a little bit more clarity and like, you know, a bike ride, I'm like, okay, I can do this. And also like, this is a gift. And again, you know, it may be like a very privileged or, you know, boarding on spiritually bypassing thing to say that. But like, I really do, you know, believe that everything that I've been through until this point has been information that and experiences that have helped shape who I am and how I view the world. And this will be, I certainly will look back on as like, you know, kind of a test. And even when it actually, you know, bringing this full circle to the eating disorder conversation, it has been such a like liberating experience to be in a home so filled with food, you know, that like you can't like we can't be put away. It's like we have it out everywhere. So filled with food of all different kinds and so many different like what I might have perceived as quote unquote bad foods in the past and to not be afraid of it and to be like, yeah, I want the brookie or I don't want the brookie or like, you know, like and to be able to not be constantly thinking about it and afraid of it in the way that I used to and to not have any of my like normal exercise coping mechanisms. Like I'm a huge fan of 305 fitness. I like dance all the time. I haven't been able to do that, of course, since being here. And I really miss it. And, you know, I can't bring myself to go for a run. Like I, that's what was really only coming from a punishing eating disordered place. So like, I've just been kind of going out for walks and, you know, done a bit of yoga and stuff like that. And it's really liberating to be able to be like, yeah, my body's probably changing a little bit. I think, I mean, in fact, it surely is. I don't have weighed myself in a decade, but like it's changing and like, that's okay. I think a lot of people's are under these circumstances and I don't feel the same kind of like triggers and fear and distress and anxiety and shame that I used to feel. So I do think like these opportunities, these challenging circumstances are both opportunities to notice like how far we've come and then also see where the work is. Like, and I have found many places where there is more work to be done that my therapist learned about yesterday. So, so yes. And that you've all learned about a little bit today. (laughs) Me too. I have done quite a bit of therapy and I will be calling you, I'm sure. And all of our other friends. And I think I just feel very blessed that I have our friendship and I have girlfriends who we were talking about this again before the podcast. And I was like, sometimes it feels like bitching is bonding and that's okay right now. It feels like we're in a state of saying, okay, I just have to get it out and I have to share with someone what is happening in my experience. And that doesn't mean that I'm wrong for that. And that doesn't mean that I'm trying to drag them down or drag our energy down. It's just about sharing in my experience and and having someone be a witness to what I'm going through. And so it's been a very, very interesting time. I'm so thankful for you. And I want everyone to be able to reach out and connect with you and follow you and make sure that they have all of the amazing content that you put out. So where is the best place for people to kind of get all of that so they can make sure to pop in and connect with you? Oh, thank you, Sarah. Well, I just will acknowledge all those like very kind things that you said, and they're obviously mutual. I'm so, so grateful for our friendship. And yes, again, have the many sort of like divine things that have happened in my life, like meaning you is certainly one of them. So thank you for the work that you do and just for being such an amazing source of just like connection and love in my life. And yeah, as far as people reaching out to me and, and wanting to connect, 
please, yes, if any of this resonated with you or if you have more questions or you want to chat further, I'm, I'm here. Uh, probably Instagram is like the best place to follow me because it's really the social media that I keep up with. And my handle there is Megan J. Bruno. So it's M-E-G-A-N-J-B-R-U-N-E-A-U. And I'm also, of course, though, on like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and I'm not on TikTok yet. We'll see if that continues throughout the pandemic. Um, might be the next step. But uh, yeah, those are kind of the main things that I'm on. And my email is just megan at meganbruno.com. My website is meganbruno.com, M-E-G-A-N-B-R-U-N-E-A-U. So yeah, feel free to shoot me an email or a DM or a LinkedIn message or Facebook or whatever, any of the forums of communication that you want to get a hold of me by. And I'd love to have you as part of my community. Thank you, love, for being here. So grateful. So grateful to be here. All right, now it's time for a quick recap and the challenge for this week. You probably know that society plays a major role in the way that we relate to our bodies. Our media is oversaturated with the idea of perfectionism. But the reality is, is that the perfectionism you see in the media simply does not exist, nor will it ever truly bring you happiness, the happiness you desire so deeply. No matter what you do, no matter how many followers you get, no matter how many likes you get, how many amazing jobs you land, or however small your gene size is, if you don't feel the happiness and the internal peace that already exists within you, if you don't feel the love that already exists within you, you will always be on the constant search for more. And your worth, as I want to remind you, always starts with you. It always starts with going backwards and looking through the parts of your past that are slowing you down, that need to be healed and need to be let go of. As I offer most weeks, continue to be kinder towards yourself this week. Continue to remind yourself of the famous quote, a life without failures is a life without lessons. A life without lessons is a life without growth. Put it up as a sticky note all over your house, dresser, mirror. Again, just remember the statement, a life without failures is a life without lessons, and a life without lessons is a life without growth. We are here to grow we are here to learn, and we are here to heal. Trust this week that you will find the courage to clean your house of the old stories that no longer serve you. We are all a work in progress, and whenever we fail, whenever we forgive and let go, we open new doors for growth and opportunity and change. And through trial and error, we then find new paths to our happier, healthier selves. So this week, again, I challenge you, to put up a quote. It doesn't have to be the quote I gave you, but a quote that will continuously inspire you to look backwards, to heal, to remind yourself of where you came from, and then to let go of the old stories in which you operate from. I trust that if you enjoyed this podcast and this episode as much as I did, you will share it with the people that you love who could also benefit from Megan's wisdom. Additionally, drop me a message on Instagram if you've been listening to these podcasts and let me know what's been resonating. Don't forget to tell me what you want to hear more of, what questions do you want answered, and how can I support you in becoming happier and healthier? Also, how can I support you in what you're up to? Make sure to tag me in how you're growing and thriving and becoming a better human each and every day. You can find me on the gram at Sarah Ann Stewart. And until next time, I'm sending you so much love and trust that this week ahead will be filled with so much happiness and health and love and all the things you deeply, deeply desire. 
All right, that concludes this cast. It is my honor to always be here with you. But hang tight because I have one last thought. You're here right now because you are ready. Because while many of us share the feelings of wanting more, not everyone is willing to do what it takes to get it. But you are here. You are ready. So this is your opportunity now to take what you just learned and implement it today. Make a pact with yourself to put just one thing into action. Just one. Write it down, do it, and share it with me. We are all in this together. Thank you for being here. You too can feel awesome from the inside out.